How's everybody doing? Great to see all of you. Happy Wednesday. You made it over halfway through. Um, so tonight we're going to jump straight in. We're talking about exile. And um, just, to, just to recap kind of where we are um, in our acronym um, so we know where exile fits in, let's just let's go through it. Um, so what does our C stand for? Awesome. Um, our A. S. Do you mean it? Okay. Um, K. Kings. All right. And then E tonight. All right. Um, T. Temple. Okay. And let's go into New Testament. Uh, E. M. P. T. Y. Good job, guys. Um, and then does, does everybody, every table have a timeline? Our, our table leaders, do you guys have a timeline? If not, we have a couple extra. I think it would be super helpful tonight as we start a new section to be able to, um, to look at Excel on your timeline. And I'll reference it a few times in our teaching tonight. So um, if you need a timeline at your table, just slip your hand up and we've got a few extra. Um, and if you need one individually, I think we have a few extra too. They're super helpful. I don't know where you do your study, but if you have a desk or a place you normally do your study, um, I've got it actually laid out on our desk um, in our office, and it's, it's great to study with just to, just to continue to get reference um, points to it. And then um, along with that, our acronym, our timeline, and a few weeks ago we introduced, um, for lack of a better term, sort of coat hangers, categories of scriptures. If you guys will remember those, there's three in the Old and New Testament. Um, so we've got foundations. Do you guys remember this? And what are the foundations in the Hebrew Testament? The book of Torah, I heard someone say. Um, the books of the Torah. How many books are in the Torah? Okay. And what are they? Yep, that's great. Um, and then our second category is? History. And how many historical books do we have in the Hebrew Testament? We have 12. And where does it begin? Joshua. And where does it end? Great job, Lisa. All right. And then we've got um, another category, the thir a third category. Instructional. And how many instructional books do we have in the Hebrew Testament? 22. That's right, Woody. All right. So um, and we've got two categories of instructional books. Do you remember this? Bonus question. Prophets and poets. So we've got five poetic books and 17 uh, prophetic books, minor and major prophets. Um, and the prophets and the poets and all the instructions, instructional writings, remember their primary aim is to amplify the historical story um, of the foundations. So you've got the foundations of how people are relating to God. Then you've got them living that out in a real time and place, the history. And then you've got the prophets and the poets who are speaking into the, to the story. So they're not um, necessarily advancing the historical narrative, um, of the people of God, they're speaking into it and amplifying it. Oftentimes, prophetically, we'll talk about a, a, a prophet tonight, um, two of them actually, um, that are confronting the people of God. Oftentimes in crisis, prophets are speaking in um, to help the people of God have gotten off. Okay, And then New Testament, just since we're at it, we've got the same three categories, foundational, historical, instructional. And what are our foundational books in the New Testament? The Gospels. And let's just say them together. Great. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what's known as the synoptic gospels, um, S-Y-N, so one optic eye with one eye seeing. 
these gospels are writing from a similar narrative or scope, and then John stands alone. Um, so you have really what you have is um, selective biographies. Because remember, John said, if all of the works and teachings and miracles of Jesus uh, were in, a, in, in books, there, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to contain them. And so through the power of the Holy Spirit and the inspiration of the writers, um, we have a selected biography of who Jesus was, the gospel, what he came to do for us. And then second category in the New Testament, same as old, history. And what's our his, historical book? Just one of them in the New Testament, the book of Acts. So in the book of Acts, um, we get you know, a, a kind of a second great commission where Jesus says in Acts 1.8, you're going to be, uh, the power of the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. Uh, the dynamite is the Greek word where we get our English word dynamite. Um, you're going to have that kind of power from the Holy Spirit, and you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And we followed the narrative of that in the first uh, century, in the first um, generation of the church, uh, growing from Jerusalem. And when we end uh, the book of Acts, uh, we're ending in Rome, which was the ends of the earth uh, during that time. So all of that is fulfilled in the book of Acts. And then we have uh, instructional books in the New Testament. How many do we have? In the New Testament. We have 22, same in the Old Testament. So we have 22, uh, beginning with Romans uh, all the way through Revelation. And our major writers, of course, are, are John and James and Paul and Jude and an unknown writer uh, of, of Hebrews uh, that, that write up, make up our instructional books. And again, the instructional books, uh, most of them epistles, are amplifying the story, the foundations of the gospel in a real time and place in history um, during the book of Acts. Does that make sense? Um, super helpful when you're studying uh, God's Word to know which category am I in, which genre am I in, what are the primary, what's the primary audience, what's the primary aim um, to understand context. And so tonight, um, as we kind of think about that, our E stands for exile, and we're primarily going to be in uh, instructional books, uh, prophets that are amplifying the story of God in a real time, in a real place, a real history uh, known as exile. And I've got a bottom line tonight. You, you knew that I would. For every painful exile, there's a promised return with God. Not always true uh, in the scriptures and in life without God. In fact, uh, the only people in the scriptures that ever return from exile um, are God's people. Every other people in the scripture that go into exile do not come back. But with God, we'll see tonight, with every painful exile, and there, there are multiple, um, there's a promised return. So uh, just to start, I just, I'm going to, um, I've, I've written a lot of notes tonight, so uh, I'm going to kind of read through these. I'm going to try to make good eye contact, but um, I want to just kind of stay in, in the text and the notes tonight. So um, if, if, if I need to stop, just grab my attention, but I'm going to be kind of focused here on... on um, on what I've written, because I really want to share some important things with you tonight about exile that I think will be helpful in understanding some stories that maybe you've heard, but also understanding what is our aim with Academy, um, the, the, the full biblical narrative, and more importantly, how you can share that with other people in a discipleship format. So speaking of that, the, some of the most formative events in the Hebrew Testament center around the concept that we're talking about tonight, which is exile. And I want you to think with me about the exiles that we read about in the Hebrew Testament. Um, the first one, actually, we're only three chapters into the Bible when we come across our first exile, and it's a very important one in the garden. 
um, where the people of God are, at that point, Adam and Eve, are exiled um, from the Garden of Eden. And we'll actually come back to that in our last exile tonight um, from the book of um, Ezekiel. The second exile is what? Do you remember? doesn't take too, too much longer in terms of biblical books. We're at the end of Genesis and then Exodus um, where we're talking about Egypt. Um, a major exile of God's people um, into Egypt, and they were there over 400 years as slaves. And then uh, tonight we'll also talk about where we are in our timeline, what's known as the exile, um, capital E, which is the people of God uh, beginning in 605 B.C., um, being exiled to Babylon. But, you know, when we think about exile, oftentimes we think about the third exile, but it's really important to recognize um, that there are actually three of them. Um, there's the Garden, Egypt, and Babylon. You think about how much story centers around God's people being taken away from their homeland, um, how many writings and narratives um, come around that. And I've got a definition of exile if you're, if you're taking notes, that too, if you're taking notes. So exile is the state of being barred from one's own home. Um, and I want to read something. This is actually from um, Tamara Ezenkenzi. I'm sure a book called Exile and Dreams. And she wrote uh, this definition of exile. She said, exile, it's not simply being homeless. Rather, it is knowing that you do not have, or that you do have a home, but that your home has been taken over by your enemies. Exile is not being without roots. That'll be very important tonight. On the contrary, it is having deep roots, which have now been plucked up, and there you are with roots dangling, writhing in pain, exposed to the cold and jeering world, longing to be restored to the native and nurturing soil that you belong in. Exile is knowing precisely where you belong, but knowing that you can't go back, not yet. Um, I'm going to read that one more time because that, that is, um, for me, I just sat with that um, all week. Exile. It is not simply being homeless. Rather, it is knowing that you do have a home, but that your home has been taken over by enemies. Exile. It's not being without roots. On the contrary, it is having deep roots, which have now been plucked up and there you are, with roots dangling, writhing in pain, exposed to a cold and jeering world, longing to be restored to your native nurturing soil. Exile is knowing precisely where you belong, but knowing that you can't go back. Not yet. And there's three major exiles in the Hebrew Testament. So that vivid description, the people of God go through exile over and over again. I just want to stop there. Um, you don't need to raise your hand or verbally respond, but how many of you, when you think about that definition or you hear um, her vivid uh, definition um, of exile, feel like you've ever experienced something like that? Um, the, the, the descriptor that stuck out to me was the, the plant pulled out of the pot and the roots being exposed and longing, grabbing down for soil, um, but, but not returning, knowing you can't return. Any of you ever felt like you've been exiled? Uh, maybe you've been exiled um, physically. Maybe you've been in exile. Uh, here's another way to think about it relationally. Maybe for some of you, I know I've sat with many of you in your stories, 
or your families, you, you, you kind of were treated like an exile. Um, your roots maybe as a child or um, even now, like long to be in that soil, um, but you can't, at least not yet. Um, some of you maybe feel like you've been exiled emotionally, um, again, in some kind of relationship. Um, I want you just to, to, to sit in that feeling for a moment, and we'll come back to that together around our tables. But the truth is that many of us experience exile relationally and emotionally um, because of the dysfunction of the people around us or brokenness of, of a situation. Um, some of us in this room even come from physical places of exile where we have to li- um, leave because of conflict in our family, our home, or maybe in our country. Um, someone who was supposed to be providing safety and protection for you failed you and sinned against you um, and didn't. And in a way, you've become an exile. And tonight, we're going to journey further into this part of the biblical narrative that can be very painful. Um, and I just want to say up front that for some of you even hearing some of this, it might stir up some things. And um, just want to be attuned to that with you. Um, but it's very important to look at in the biblical narrative and sense to understand um, our people, the people of God, and what we collectively have gone through as a people that actually still live in exile in many ways. Um, so as we look at the scriptures tonight and the specific period no, known as the exile period, we should recognize that all of humanity, even now, is in a state of exile. Have you ever thought about that? Um, that, as Paul said, our citizenship is not here and we're living in a place in a state that we weren't made for. Um, I want to teach about exile tonight by inviting you to the story of two people that you probably have heard of um, that were both exiles and learn a little bit more about their story and actually our story as a people um, that have experienced exile over and over and over again. Um, the exile period is, is, is found primarily in 605 B.C., and we go all the way through. Many of you have re- done your reading through 587. There were three waves of exile, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But let's start with the first in 605, and our first character and story, his name was Daniel. And when he's taken away to Babylon with three of his friends, he's 15 years old. Did you know that? Um, do you remember being 15 years old? Some of you haven't hit 15 yet, one or two of you. Um, It's a great year. You're going to love it, Liam. Um, Because you're too young to have too much responsibility, but you're old enough to have some freedoms. Um, I probably was about 15 years old when Brian Adams sang a song about the summer of 69 (laughs) and reminiscing about the good old days of his youth. Um, So when we get into our story here, and if you have your scriptures, you can flip over to Daniel 1. We're in the summer of 605 B.C. And if you can just kind of go with me in the story, um, I'm going to take some liberty here. um, But I don't think it's too far off in the biblical narrative. But imagine sort of in chosen style, um, you know, several 15-year-olds that are, I don't know if they had bikes, but they're, enjoying their time on the streets of Jerusalem and um, representing the best and the brightest of Israel. We know this about them. Um, In fact, um, several of them were from noble families. They were smart and good-looking and from great families. And um, it pains me to say this as a Georgia fan, but they were uh, the Tim Tebow's of their day, Um, Daniel and 
his friends, um, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, better known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, but it's the summer of 605, and for these guys as 15-year-olds, um, the world's at their fingertips. Um, everything in front of them until everything changed on one summer day. Um, I think about this, and just to put us in the context, um, you think about national days that, that stand out for us that where everything changed. I wrote down um, 9-11. Um, think about where you were on 9-11. 2001. I think it was March 12th, March 11th, 2020. Whatever the day was where it was like there's, there's some kind of virus and you could get it and you shouldn't go, go places and all the things. I remember um, someone texted me that day. I was at Shaw Air Force Base working and um, someone um, texted me and said, hey, um, we're, we're not going to meet for the next two weeks as a church. And I wrote him by my, I won't say his name. I was like, you're crazy. You're nuts. Um, you're going to shut your church down for two weeks? It's crazy. And little did I know, we wouldn't meet for five months. Um, no, let's not talk about that. I don't want to talk about it anymore. Um, let's don't talk about masks or anything. Um, December 6th, uh, Pearl Harbor. Um, 7th, sorry. Um, yeah, that's right. June, June 6th, one thing. What, I wonder like, what a day like that could represent in your life, if there's a day that sticks out for you. Um, we have national days like that that we think about and remember where everything changed. But I wonder if there was a day in your family or your life where you look back and go, man, this day everything changed for me. My life was going this way, and then it went this way. Um, there were prophets, as you got into your text this week, that had warned about this. Um, in the same way we might listen to a news story or hear someone pontificate about, hey, this could happen, an invasion or an attack. Or, and they're just sort of in the background. Um, and the picture I get of many of these prophets, um, guys like Habakkuk and um, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, who were saying, hey, we need to turn from our sin, our brokenness, or something really bad is going to happen. Um, and in 605 B.C., something really bad happened. If you look at your timeline, if you have it open, um, in the southern kingdom, there was a king named uh, uh, Jehoiakim who was reigning. So that's where we are in, uh, in, in 605. And Jehoiakim, some of you know this, was actually a puppet. Like he was placed there by, by the Babylonians um, and in many ways was acting on their behalf, sort of like Pilate um, in, in New Testament era. Um, and just to jump into our text and get a little bit more of a flavor of what's happening and um, some of the prophets warning about this day that was coming of destruction, I'd love for someone to read Jeremiah 25, verses 1 through 11. I think I've got it up here, too. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't want to miss this. Um, I thought I'd bring a picture of um, two people you know at 15. This is Gabe Smith at 15. That's me, yours truly. Go Braves. Uh, this was uh, Judson Brandt. I don't know if, how many of you know Howie and Joanne Brandt were wonderful missionaries with SIM for years, incredible Bible teachers. Judson would beat us up every day at church. Uh, he looks nice there. but um, And then some of you know Ralph and Karen Mello. This is their son, Aaron, and all of us in youth group together at 15 years old. So I forgot to put that when we were talking about 15-year-olds, but there we are at 15. 
young Chris and Gabe. There's a lot I'd love to tell you guys. Okay, here's our passage. Jeremiah 25, verses 1 through 11. Um, okay. Oh, do we have a sign, readers? Oh, okay. Hey, we're figuring this out. Yeah, whoever wants to take it, go for it. I can start. This message for all the people of Judah came to Jeremiah from the Lord during the fourth year of Jehoiakim's reign over Judah. This was the year when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon began his reign. Jeremiah the prophet said to the people in Judah and Jerusalem, For the past 23 years, from the 13th year of the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, until now, the Lord has been giving me his messages. I have faithfully passed them on to you, but you have not listened. Again and again the Lord has said to his servants, the prophets, sent you his servants, the prophets, but you have not listened or even paid attention. Each time the message was this, turn from the evil road you are traveling and from the evil things you are doing. Only then I will let you live in this land that the Lord gave to you and your ancestors forever. Do not provoke my anger, anger by worshiping idols you made with your own hands. Then I will not harm you. Continue. Continue. Does Who it wants? Go? Yep. Oh, it's me. It's you. <laughs> I'm waiting for someone in the booth to hit the slide. <laughs> Sorry. No worries. Then I will not harm you, but you would not listen to me, says the Lord. You made me furious by worshiping idols you made with your own hands, bringing on yourselves all the disasters you now suffer. And now the Lord of heaven's armies says, because you have not listened to me, I will gather together all the armies of the north under King Nebuchadnezzar of Bab Babylon, whom I have appointed as my deputy. I will bring them all against this land and its people and against the surrounding nations. I will completely destroy you and make you an object of horror and contempt and a ruin forever. I will take away your happy singing and laughter. The joyful voices of bridegrooms and brides will no longer be heard. Your millstones will fall silent and the lights in your homes will go out. This entire land will become a desolate wasteland. Israel and her neighboring lands will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. Thank you, Carrie. Um, that's a lot to take in, but just for a moment collectively, like what sticks out to you um, from the passage? Is there, is there a word or phrase or um, a verse that sticks out to you? I can go back as well. You haven't listened. In 70 years, that kind of takes away that generation. An entire generation. Yep. What else? They're both. Make them an object of horror. What a word. Yeah. There's also kind Paul. of a, a puriting, a puriting of the gods that they're worshiping by telling how they're made by their own hands. Mm -hmm. that there's so much less than, yeah. Mm. What else? I did a sort of study um, last year about bride and bridegrooms and how he mm. will shut the voices of them and stop marriages and put like a 
so that um, you know marriage is something that will of course grow God's kingdom and putting a stop to the voice of the brides and the bridegroom mm. kind of shuts that down too. Wow. So. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. We'll talk about singing in a little bit. Hey, I didn't even know you were in here. Good to see you. This, this is the word, this is what sticks out to me, whom I have appointed as my deputy. Um, a madman, a madman. Yeah. And, and so we've been journeying through the Hebrew Testament together. So any thoughts about, like, why is God so upset? And we've walked through all these covenants. We've walked through all these things. Like, um, are you guys thinking back on some of the covenant work we've done and some of the agreements and what God says? Those are some of the things that I was thinking. Yeah. I don't want to cut anybody off. Is there anything else? <clears throat> So in 605 B.C., a big marker if you're taking notes, um, the first wave, what happens is, well, first of all, the Babylonians were the superpower of the day. And so you think about the Romans, um, lots of different nations have had that moment. Egyptians, actually, the Babylonians defeated the Egyptians in 605 B.C. And they were probably the second strongest nation at that time. um, And they just wiped them out. And so they've got their sights on Judah and Jerusalem specifically. Um, and there's a, uh, a prince, actually, that's named here. He wasn't actually a king yet. When he comes um, to Jerusalem, his dad was king in 605. And Nebuchadnezzar was the crown prince. And actually, he gets right to the edge of Jerusalem, and his dad dies. And so he's called back to Babylon. Um, And so they only take a few people, and some of you remember this in your text, if you look at Daniel 1, um, and you remember some of our study of Daniel, the Babylonians were ingenious um, at the worst of things, Um, but one of them was subjugating people. And so what they would do is take the best and the brightest of the nations they would conquer and indoctrinate them in their way of thinking. And so when Daniel and his three friends are taken from Jerusalem, they're among the best and the brightest um, that Judah has to offer, and they take them first um, to indoctrinate them to lead their people into subjugation. So um, you, this is a great little point here. If you want to destroy a country, you want to destroy a group of people, you, you, you destroy the next generation. You, you take out the next generation, which we could talk about this for a long time. But talk about like targeting a group of people. You target a, a nation, a churches, a communities, a cities, a families, um, next generation, you'll destroy them. And the Babylonians knew this. And so they got 15-year-olds like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego 
and brought them in and began to indoctrinate them into the Babylonian way. And one of the things I would say about this, and when we were studying Daniel, we talked about this, that Babylon wasn't just a nation. It represented a state of mind. Um, It really represents secularism. Um, Babylon, of course, was founded in Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, um, which represented this idea that humanistic behavior, we can do it on our own. We can build a tower to heaven and get to heaven on our own. Um, And so the, the nation of Babylon is long past. But the idea of Babylon and the state of of Babylon, the sin of Babylon, if you will, the soul of Babylon lives on in secularism. And again, this is just maybe I'm, you know, getting old enough to start saying these things, um, but I mean it. Um, You can see now that a target of the next generation and being able to pull that group into that mindset um, and really destroying a group of people. And that's what happens. And Nebuchadnezzar is at the center of it all. He's only 25 years old himself, um, a really young man at the time, but a full-blown narcissist um, and version of what Babylon produces in all of us, by the way, um, which is self-serving, um, consumer of people. You know, we think about consumers of products, but um, Babylon produces consumers of people um, that, that want to consume other people. Um, really, you know, um, Jen and I are with... Um, uh, Dan Allender a couple weeks ago with, with some other pastors, and he talked about when Jesus says, um, um, you're, you're murderers and you're adulterers. It was a hard message. And he, and he basically talks about really all sin is adultery and murder. And you say, well, I haven't committed adultery. I haven't murdered anybody. And, but, but really, you think about those two. It's when you, when you murder someone, you're destroying them. Um, you're... you're, you're um, um, whether it's with your words, your thoughts, you're bringing them down. Um, maybe it's because you envy them. Whatever it is, you're, you're murdering them with your thoughts and your words. Um, and lust or adultery is you're consuming them. You're consuming someone. Um, so it doesn't just have to be physically. But it's basically you look at people for what you can get from them. And then once you're done consuming them, you throw them away and move on to the next person. Um, it, and that really takes us back to the Babylonian mentality and what they were indoctrinating um, all the nations that they took over was with the same secularistic thought that still is you know, present today because the same one behind it is still present today, the evil one, um, of making us consumers of people and power hungry. Again, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's father dies, so he goes back to Babylon, um, and then he comes back you know, again, um, and we, we see three different waves, as I mentioned. Um, and so one is in, check me on this, is it 597? Yeah. Uh, and then 586. Um, so, so your three waves of exile um, to Babylon are in 605 with nobility and uh, kind of leading people of the day, like Daniel and his friends. And then um, 597, our friend Ezekiel, who we'll meet in just a little bit, is taken then. And then finally in 586, the whole city is burned um, and consumed, and um, almost everybody is taken to Babylon. Uh, Jeremiah stays. So I want to get uh, into 2 Kings and continue in our narrative here. Uh, I don't know if we have a reader for, for that. 2 Kings um, 24, 1 through 4. During Jehoiakim's reign, 
King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon invaded the land of Judah. Jehoiakim surrendered and paid him tribute for three years, but then rebelled. Then the Lord sent bands of Babylonian, Aramean, Moabite, Ammonite raiders against Judah to destroy it, just as the Lord had promised through his prophets. These disasters happened to Judah because of the Lord's command. He had decided to banish Judah from his presence because of the many sins of Manasseh, who had filled Jerusalem with innocent blood. The Lord would not forgive this. Okay, thank you. Um, anything from this passage that sticks out to you? By the way, where are we in the scriptures, genre-wise, in our three categories? History. We're in history. It's telling you what happened. Why did, why did this exile take place? Can you say it again, Kevin? Uh, it says, Surely this came upon Judah. Verse 3. This is tough, like theologically, you know, to get around and to understand when we, you, you can't really understand. We, if, if you read a passage like this and we hadn't studied the covenants and we didn't understand where all this came from, what would be your impression of God? Harsh. That would be mine. Like, this is super harsh. Um, you know, that you're punishing people in this way. Um, but when we understand the whole narrative of covenant, we understand why God responds this way. Um, and it was actually the most gracious thing that he could do. Um, I want to talk for just a, a moment about these three exiles again, because I think this is really important. Um, and something interesting as I was studying this week um, that I noticed. So Babylon, you know, again, is this indoctrinization of your heart. It's um, the secularization, um, if you will, humanistic behavior. I can do it. We can get to heaven, Tower of Babel, the whole thing, and spreading that understanding of power and consuming people, which is what Babylon did. Um, but we go back to our first exile, which is Eden. And what was the great temptation um, in Eden? What was the tree that Adam and Eve ate from? Knowledge. It's knowledge, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Um, which is found in Genesis 3, 1 through 9, that narrative. So if you want to think about it this way, with our three exiles, um, the first exile, the exile from Eden, was an exile um, that was really around knowledge, this understanding. We're, we're going to be like God, knowing good and evil. We'll, we'll be God ourselves, um, and there's an exile. Egypt, um, what was the, the, the major thing that happened in Egypt? Well, they're um, enslaved, but it's more than that. They're, it's, it's like a... Um, it's, it's like a service camp almost. They're, they're all uh, put into the service of Egypt and they're forced labor, right? You know, um, Exodus 3, 13 and 14 talks about how, you know, as they're multiplying the Hebrews, um, they're working them harder and harder and harder to build bigger and bigger, bigger structures in Egypt. And so it was an, it was an exile really around the works of your hands. Uh, I'm going somewhere with this. And then Babylon uh, is an identity exile. Um, so if you think about head, heart, and hands, right, um, you could probably think about different ways. You could maybe think about it, um, knowledge, work, identity. Uh, these are the three different types of exile. 
Um, and it's going to be important um, to understand that and how God wants the whole person, like wants all of us. Um, when Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and your strength. And interestingly, um, all three of these exiles are playing on, you know, not exclusively, but are playing on one part of who people are. Their desire for knowledge, their heart and identity, and then just physically their hands and what they can produce. And every single one of them were, you know, were exiles um, from people um, who were looking to exploit that in different ways. And the reality is, is that in the Hebrew Testament and even now, that exile, this understanding of being that plant that's pulled up from its roots, that's longing to get back into the soil, exile changes everything. And God knew that. Um, God knew that exile would change things. And the reality is, He still does. Um, and the reality is, too, that God wanted things to change. Uh, Daniel and his friends would never see Jerusalem again. You know this. Um, they never worshipped in the temple again, physically. They never slept in their own beds. They never ate at their family table again after that day. Um, things changed. And can you imagine the sense of loss? Um, again, there's three of these deportations, if you will, 605, 597, uh, 586, where Jerusalem was finally burned along with the temple. You can imagine the temple is burned. And so um, the whole um, state of Jerusalem and Judah is in chaos. There's a, um, you can look up pictures of this that are depicted in famous works of art of the whole city on fire and the people of God, the final exiles being led away from the city, looking back at the, the city on fire. And for many of them, that was their last view of the city. I want to stop there for a second, and we'll pick up more of the story in the life of exile and the role of prophets um, when we come back. But I'd love for you to just get into... Um, your table discussions a little bit, and I've got some questions for you um, to get a little bit further into some of these passages and some of the exile story that we've learned so far. Um, and maybe even um, you could talk a little bit about um, if you've experienced an exile and, and what that's felt like in your life. So we'll take a little bit of time and come back together and continue um, in exile, and we'll move on to our next friend, which is Ezekiel. All right, we're going to continue um, our journey, guys. I'm, I don't want to break up conversations, but um, I want to be faithful to get you, um, get you out on time, too. Um, we're going to continue our discussion and look at how God continued to work even in and through exile. As we've learned tonight, exile was a, a theme all throughout the people of God in their history, uh, all the way back to Genesis 3. And in a, in a real way, all of us uh, as humanity and certainly as God's people um, live as exiles, as people that know we have a home but can't be there right now. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. But what, what God was faithful to do all through all three ex, um, exiles is to provide his presence and to provide a way to continue to connect with him and to hear from him. Even back in Genesis 3, providing coverings and a way for Adam and Eve um, and certainly in Egypt uh, through Moses and bringing them to a promised land, and specifically in Babylon through uh, prophets, people that would remind them of the stories of God and remind them of God's uh, faithful covenant promises to them, that even though they had broken and God had punished, um, that there was still hope. And one of those prophets um, that you've probably heard of is a man named Ezekiel. And if you look at your timeline, um, Ezekiel is on there. And I think there's a little cloud with an arrow, um, which is representative of the presence of God departing the temple. 
um, which you could argue is maybe the most tragic event in the Old Testament, um, the presence of God um, leaving his temple, his people in that way. Um, so I'd love to start with just um, um, getting to know Ezekiel a little bit and his commissioning, his calling. He was a young man as well. Um, he's listed as one of the um, southern kingdom prophets, but he really prophesied to all of Israel. And part of his commissioning story is found in Ezekiel chapter 2. So I'd love if, um, if we have a reader that would be willing to read from Ezekiel 2. I don't have the passage for this one, so you'll have to um, use your scriptures to read it. Um, Ezekiel chapter 2 is the story of Ezekiel's commissioning. And I've got a I would just, yeah, just chapter two would be great. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry, what was that? You can do the whole thing. The whole thing. Well, I'll give this back. (laughs) And he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet, and I will speak with you. And as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. And he said to me, Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel to nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants also are impudent and stubborn. I send you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God, And whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, be not afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words, Though briars and thorns are with you, and you sit on scorpions, be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. And you shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house. But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me, and it had written on the front and on the back, and there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. Wow. Yeah. Eat this book. (laughs) What do you hear in the passage? What's a word that repeats over and over in this passage in Ezekiel 2? You got it. A house of rebellion, rebellious, rebellion, um, take and eat this book. Strange word, but uh, is, is putting his word in Ezekiel's heart and in his mouth. And don't you see the grace in this, that even in um, the worst moment, God is raising up a person that would continue to speak faithfully to them, his word, um, to minister to them. And this is probably a good moment to remind um, ourselves <laughs> of what the role of a prophet was. Um, The role of a prophet specifically is to hear from God, um, to take his word, to take the scroll, um, to put it in their mouth and their heart, and to faithfully give that to God's people. And as we'll see with Ezekiel, his wife dies, uh, which is actually a sign of um, the death and destruction that God's about to bring upon Judah. And so even in physical personified ways, the prophets um, would sort of live out um, in real time for the people um, to see and feel and experience um, God's presence and his word, even in their worst moments. Now, a priest, and we talked about this before, but a priest would primarily um, take the sins and the request 
um, of the people and would go to God. So it would represent the people to God, whereas a prophet was the um, converse, would take you know, a word from God and bring it to um, the people. A- actually, Ezekiel, our friend that we'll um, get to know a little bit better tonight, is both. He's born, we learn um, that he's born in a priestly family, so he actually is a priest, um, but God calls him to also be a prophet, to represent the people um, and to represent him to the people. And something interesting about Ezekiel and why <clears throat> I wanted to mention him tonight is that you know, he's embedded with the people in exile. Um, so he's exiled with them. He's deployed with them to Babylon, and he dies in Babylon. Um, and he spends his uh, prophetic ministry um, speaking to people there on behalf of God and reminding the first half of the book, if you read Ezekiel, are all these woes and all the ways that the people of God have fallen short and warning them about destruction and telling them that they've rebelled. But if you look at the last 15 chapters of Ezekiel, and we'll end there tonight, um, it's actually uh, a, um, a word of hope and restoration of what God wants to do. Because um, everyone watch this, exile is both a stripping away um, and a longing. It's the stripping away of something, but also creating a longing for a hope, a renewal, a restoration of, of what could be. Um, in all three of our exiles in the Old Testament, we see this, a stripping away, literally, but also a longing for what could be, uh, what could be restored. And God used prophets to remind his people of his word. Um, a couple things specifically about Ezekiel and his prophetic ministry of reminding is you'll remember in Ezekiel 10 and 11, some of you read it in your reading, um, Ezekiel sees the very presence of God, which, I mean, what does that look like? The very presence of God departing the temple on a chariot. Um, So he actually sees the presence of God departing the temple and and going up, um, which must have been an amazing and terrifying sight um, all at once. And by the way, um, God's presence leaving the temple is a reminder of what hell is. Um, hell, in a literal sense, is the absence of God's presence in every good uh, and perfect way. We'll learn this week in our passage in James, uh, James 1, 12 through 18, um, and verses 16 through 18, James uh, reminds his readers that every good, perfect gift uh, is coming from above. So anything good in the world Um, the bowl of ice cream you're going to have tonight, um, a warm bed, Um, anything good in the world ultimately comes from God. Um, And anything evil and destructive and death um, in the world comes from the enemy. And so when we think about hell, which is a literal place, um, but it's the understanding that the presence of God is is away from that place. And we see a little bit of hell on earth here um, that Israel is experiencing as they, um, and Ezekiel sees the very presence of God, all the goodness of God depart um, physically from the temple, um, which again is a stripping away, but also creating a space for a longing of what could return. There's a phrase that repeats itself over and over again in the book of Ezekiel and his prophetic ministry, um, and it's on behalf of, remember, a prophet is speaking God's word to God's people. He's embedded in Babylon talking to the exiles, and this is the phrase that repeats over and over again. They will know that I am Lord. They will know that I am Lord. They will know that I am Lord. Over and over and over and over again. Uh, Remember um, that in a a very real sense, 
Um, we, as the people of God, are exiles in a foreign place. Roots that have been pulled up, longing to get back down into the soil again. And exile is always um, tragedy. Um, God didn't make us or create us originally to live in exile out of the soil that we were created for and His very promises and His presence. And one of the passages that stuck out to me is we think about living in a real sense as exiles, longing um, for God to come and to restore us into a place um, that He's creating for us is John 14, um, where Jesus, we think about exile, where Jesus tells His disciples um, before His crucifixion, I'm going to what? I'm going to prepare a place for you um, that where I am you would also be. And if I go to prepare a place for you, surely I'll come and get receive you that where I am you can, you can also be. And Thomas says, we don't know where you're going. And Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And in a real sense, I think what Jesus is speaking prophetically to is to a people in exile. Um, that ultimately, our hearts long to be home with God. And, you know, we talk a lot about we're a long way from the garden. And really all of life and all of humanity is trying to get back to the garden. Um, trying to get back into the perfect presence of God. Um, the, the, the perfect uh, state that we were created for. The purposes of God. The pleasures of God. The promises of God. And in a sense, we see bits and pieces of that along the way through the giving of the promised land to the people of God, the, a physical temple that God told David and Solomon to construct where he would dwell, different uh, things along the way that God allowed his, uh, his presence to manifest in and through. But ultimately, um, exile won't end until we're um, you know, in home and the home that Jesus is creating for us in heaven. So we see in, in Ezekiel that exile is matched by these hopeful stories of the return of God's people, not just back to Jerusalem, but back into relationship, um, in a right relationship with Him where the land can be restored, where temple worship can be restored. And Ezekiel begins to have these vivid visions. Um, and one of them, he's by the Euphrates, most likely in Babylon. Um, and he begins to have a vision of um, Israel returning um, back to Jerusalem. And again, as I mentioned, the first half of his prophetic ministry is, is a lot of destruction and woes and um, all kinds of negative bad things because of their behavior and disobedience. But the last 15 chapters are really more hopeful. Um, the second half becomes much more about the restoration of the temple and the presence of God and the people of God returning to a home and to a place. And the return of God's people, interestingly, is referred to by Ezekiel as a resurrection. And he says over and over again, I'm going to give my people a new heart. Um, so even in these words, we're getting glimpses of ultimately Jesus in the gospel. Um, of if, if, um, if the covenant's been broken and death has come, only a resurrection to life will restore it again. Um, that's the only way for it to be restored. And so Ezekiel prophesies that um, God's going to raise up a true and Davidic king, if you want to write these references down in Ezekiel 37, um, 24 through 28. He, he um, says God's going to rebuild his temple, um, which we know in part was fulfilled physically, but he's talking about something more in Exodus 40 through 48. Uh, he talks about that God's going to cause his glorious presence that he saw depart in chapter 10 and 11, return to Jerusalem once again. Again, he's talking about a physical moment and time of return, but he's harking us forward to a new Jerusalem, a new city, 
um, that God's going to dwell in forever and restore His presence to. And that's in Ezekiel 43, 1 through 5. I want to read a passage in this hopeful narrative um, of what God wants to restore out of exile, which ultimately points us to the gospel. And this is from Ezekiel 36, uh, beginning in verse 33. I just want you to listen to these words. Ezekiel says, as a prophet does, this is what the sovereign Lord says to you, when I, which is the point of exile, when I cleanse you from your sins, I will repopulate your cities and the ruins will be rebuilt. The fields that used to lie empty and desolate and plain view of everyone will once again be farmed. And when I bring you back, which really is the gospel, God bringing us back, people will say, the former wasteland is now, pay attention to this word, like the Garden of Eden. So we go all, just real, I mean, we're going all the way back to the first exile in Genesis 3. And now Ezekiel is referencing the garden as the reference point for the return. It's amazing. Which we'll see in part as the exiles return under Cyrus, but not completely um, until Jesus comes again and restores all things. He continues, The abandoned and ruined cities now have strong walls and are filled with people. Then the surrounding nations that survive will know that I am the Lord, and I have rebuilt the ruins and replanted the wasteland. For I am the Lord, I the Lord have spoken, and I will do what I say. And really what we get here is a picture of heaven. You know, remember the end of Revelation, heaven is described as a, as a city coming out of the sky. It's a new Jerusalem. It's a new city that God has prepared for His people with a river of life flowing through it. And in a real sense, heaven, this place that Jesus has gone to prepare for each of us, is the restoration of Eden. It's the restoration of the promised land. It's the restoration of the temple. It's all three of them restored, all three exiles, in a real place a place where the Sabbath king rules and reigns, a place where God's promises are true forever, and in a place where His presence dwells to be worshipped and glorified forever. And this is what uh, Ezekiel is describing. It's a beautiful thing. Um, last passage for us to read collectively is Ezekiel 37, because some of you know this story. Another vision right after that section God um, transports Ezekiel in the spirit to a valley of dry bones. Do you remember this? And so think about this. So for a priest like Ezekiel, um, it was forbidden for them to be around death. So a priest was forbidden from touching a dead body, from being around bones, any of that stuff. And God puts this priest in the middle of a valley with all of these bones. And he gives them this vision and I thought maybe we could just hear some of it. Uh, maybe um, this side of the room uh, for this one. Um, Ezekiel 37. And why don't we just read like maybe the first 12, 13, 14 verses of that. Anybody want to give a, give it a shot? Michaela? Let's go through 14. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the, in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones, and he led me around among them. And behold, there were very many of the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? 
And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, of, the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live, and I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone, and I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, Our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore, therefore prophesy, and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of, e of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. Thanks, Michaela. Yeah, what do, you, what do you, just for a minute, just what do you hear in that passage, this vision of dry bones, Ezekiel 37? There's a repetition from several things in 36. Resurrection. There it is. Resurrection. Israel saw themselves as dry bones without flesh. Um, bones that have been set out for the animals, other nations to eat. And let's think about our covenants. Okay, This was a people that was called um, through Abraham in Genesis 12 to a, be a blessing to the nations, uh, to be priest to the nations. And instead... Um, they had made a, a mockery of their relationship with God, and instead of blessing the nations, they'd been enslaved by the other nations. And uh, God, through Ezekiel, begins to prophesy again a word of hope to them. Um, and it only is through resurrection life, um, something that only God can do to bring life to dry bones. Anything else? A beautiful passage. Yeah, one thing I noticed, uh, Chris, was just in those last few verses, um, when he when he speaks what God tells him to speak, I think it looks like about five different times in the ESV, God says, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, That's good. I will. Yeah. That's great. I'll do what I say. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So the central theme um, of tonight is that for every painful exile, there's a promised return. And it, it struck me even tonight, just um, in our time together, when Jesus, you know, comes to Nazareth, he unfolds um, the scroll, begins to preach from Isaiah, and he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Um, I've come to pro proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the exiles, the year of God's jubilee and glory. Um, it's, he's given a word to exiles, to people that are without a home, that have been enslaved, that are impoverished, that don't have 
um, and he's coming to proclaim his favor and jubilee and, and promises as only he can. Um, I, wanted, I want us to end in a little different way. Um, one of the things in the exiled narratives, and maybe you read this, um, is that many of the exiles, of course, perished in Babylon. Some of them returned. Um, but many of them spent the, the portion, good portion of their life there like Daniel and died there. And many of them um, existed at least initially um, in Babylon with a lot of vengeance, a lot of bitterness, a lot of um, you know, remorse and anger. And we read some of that. It's recorded for us. Um, one of these uh, psalms is Psalm 137, um, where the exiles are saying, you know, we don't want to sink um, because their captors are saying, sing for us a song. Sing for us a song of Zion. Um, talk, talk to us about Jerusalem and tell us about your God and sing us a song. And they say, we're going to hang our harps up in the trees. We're going to refuse to sing. Um, and you'll remember one of the prophets that is left behind writes the book of Lamentations as well. He sees the destruction in 586 of Jerusalem as Jeremiah. And it's the same Jeremiah that writes the letter to the exiles in Jeremiah 29. We like verse 11. But before we get there, uh, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. He says things like, uh, build houses and plant gardens. Think about this. And uh, pray to the Lord on uh, the city's behalf. For in their, their welfare, you'll find your welfare, Jeremiah 29, 7. Think about that prayer for the people that had taken you from your home and you know, enslaved you, and God says, remember Genesis 12? That you're supposed to be a blessing to the nations? And even when your roots are dangling out from the pot and you're longing to get back in the soil, that maybe just maybe there's a, a bigger purpose in all of this? And some of you remember, even out of the exile narrative specifically, that 600 years later, there's these magi that come from the east, and they talk about this prophecy that they've heard about. And, you know, we've talked about this before, but, like, you ever wonder, like, how did they hear about the prophecy? How did they know about it? Yeah, because um, Israel was in Babylon for 70 years, and somebody sang a song. Um, somebody preached a sermon. You know, Daniel uh, went to his room and prayed and talked about his God. There were exiles there that, that kept the song of God in their heart. Um, and in the same way that God provided Habakkuk and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, these prophets to remind the people of their story, you know, songs have a way of carrying um, our stories into different places. And we see that even culturally. People who are displaced, they still sing the songs of their homeland. And part of singing the song of your youth is reminding yourself of your story. And for us as the people of God, it's reminding us of our story collectively and of our God. And so... Um, I asked Stuart to come and um, to close us tonight um, with a song, and we're going to do a couple things with that um, in light of exile and thinking about our people who were in Babylon and many of them who their posture um, was, I'm, I'm going to refuse to sing about God or um, talk about it um, because they were so um, in such a state of despair. And but we know that for many of them, they did choose to sing and begin to sing. And God used them in that um, to ultimately tell the story of restoration um, through Jesus. So.
and I turn it over to somebody who can sing. <laughs> By the way, I just want to say how grateful I am to serve with Stuart. I really am. And uh, Jen and I are very grateful to be with Ashley and Stuart in ministry in this season, this time and place. Uh, if you're able, let's extend our hands. May the Lord bless you and keep you. And may the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious unto you and in your exiles. Make the light of his face and his glory to shine upon you. May he put a new song in your mouth and your heart. A reason to sing. A hope to believe in. May he fill you with his peace and his love. And the reminder tonight that the best is yet to come. That you are preparing a place for us. And you will come to take us where you are forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Love you guys. Thank you.